Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of conversations with spiritually awakening people. We've done over 660-something of them now. If this is new to you and you'd like to check out previous ones, go to batgap.com and look under the past interviews menu. And you'll see something new under the past interviews menu. A person developed this whole thing just in the past week and sent it to me and said, look what I've done. And what it is, is a thing where you can type in any word or phrase and you'll immediately see a list of all the interviews in which that word or phrase was mentioned. And then if you click on any item in that list, you'll immediately see that video in the window up above. And if you click play on that video, it starts playing at the point where that word or phrase was mentioned. So it's a really cool search thing. And it's based upon the YouTube uh, captions. And there's still about a third of the interviews or so that don't have captions yet. So we're in the process of creating captions for all those as well. In fact, if you'd like to help with that project, there's information on that page. In any case, uh, this whole program is made possible through the support of appreciative listeners and viewers. So if you appreciate it and would like to help support it, there's a PayPal button on every page of the website, and there's a page explaining alternatives to PayPal. Also, I encourage you to subscribe to the YouTube channel. looks like we are going to hit 100,000 subscribers this year, which has no ultimate significance, but it's kind of a cool milestone. So thanks for joining us, and uh, thanks to today's guest, who is Matt Garrett. Matt is a young fellow living in the UK. I discovered him through his interview with uh, Angelo DeLulu, whom I interviewed a few months ago. And um, I've spent the last week listening to various YouTube videos that Matt has made and have enjoyed his burgeoning wisdom. So I have a brief bio here that Matt sent me. I'll just read that and then we'll get started. Growing up, a burning desire to seek truth took hold. After years of searching, the need to see reality overtook the need to avoid suffering. Through the marriage of inquiry and surrender, realization unfolded in ways that could never have been imagined by my former self. After seeing through the illusion of separation, there is now a keen interest in exploring the mystery of reality and the human form. The stage of integrating this non-dual understanding into daily life is ongoing and beautiful and something I return to daily, not just to help myself, but to look for ways to alleviate suffering for anyone who is interested. It has been seen to be a never-ending clarification, deepening with each insight into reality, a reality that favors authenticity, honesty, and devotion. All else will be burned to a beautiful pile of ash. So if, it sounds dramatic when you read it out. Yeah, but if, if nothing else, you're a good writer. It's funny because it's it's so ordinary, but it's so when you when you want to write it down, it's like it's both extraordinary and ordinary at the same time for anyone. Yeah, that's very true. And I often discuss that. I have a friend who's going through a really beautiful unfolding, and she often finds herself just weeping uncontrollably with the overwhelming love and beauty she's experiencing and everything. Yet at the same time, you know, she also uses the word ordinary. Just like she said, it's like the most ordinary, but familiar is a word because it feels so like you always knew. I think that's what the ordinariness, why everyone says it. Some people use the phrase the natural state. It's perfectly natural. 
And yet I think that if the average person who is deeply mired in suffering were to pop into it instantly, their jaw would drop to the floor. You know, there would be this amazement. And yet at the same time, once you acclimate, and you've said things here about integrating and so on, once you acclimate, it's the most natural thing in the world. You don't walk around weeping or (laughs) sit in the corner drooling or, (laughs) you know, it's just kind of natural. It's as if it's, it's prior to everything, isn't it? It's what they're without the doing, without the thoughts. And it's there in the thoughts as well. It's, it's, it, it, even to say, like you said there, it's, it's just prior to everything. It's it's not as if it's waiting to be seen. It's, it's once everything kind of just stops for a moment and it's just clear. Yeah. Um, Other phrases that are sometimes used are the, the simplest form of awareness or the state of least excitation of consciousness. You know, everything else is a agitation, but that natural state is just the most settled natural state you're only like 23 years old but yet you wrote this thing as if you've been on this long journey how old were you when you first got interested in this stuff there's been a lot of suffering i know it's weird to like i look young and stuff like that but i think maybe it just hit me earlier like very early i remember just an intense i look back and you can call it suffering and with almost a kind of sense of humor to it and um maybe a sense of, oh, that, that was nothing, I needed to do it. But in, in the moment, it was excruciating. With the burning desire to know truth, there was this need to get away from this suffering, this feeling that this wasn't real, this wasn't normal. Everyone else seemed normal. And there was something that needed to be seen. And even to this day, once to be clarified, I just couldn't live with myself or the idea of myself that I thought I was. And I knew there was a way out but then I realized this was going to be a way through and all my ways out basically dead ended, which was just infuriating this sense of suffering, this sense of isolation. And it was really through and I hold my hands up. It's through teachers. And I mean, ultimately, you see, there's no one. There's no real teacher. There's no real guru. They're, they're just showing what's already within. But coming across inquiry, just normalizing this unfolding that was happening gave me so much courage to keep going with it that i just be so grateful that you came across these things and you realize even gratefulness doesn't make sense but yeah just burning suffering was the fuel for this you said in this thing that you sent the need to see reality overtook the need to avoid suffering which implies that to see reality you had to confront suffering head on yeah had to sort of face it and not try to stifle it or blot it out yeah in fact i like you said, that I go even further to the only keys to the freedom was in the heart of the suffering was was at the core of each of these resistances, these emotions, if you want to call it on a relative level, the things that we were running from most, I realized it wasn't that I had to overcome these things, I had to just examine them for what they were, and really allow truth to be seen rather than achieved by getting over it. And especially starting out with emotional work, I realized and I've seen in your interviews, it's amazing when people talk about emotion because I can relate so much to the only way I've ever gotten through emotion was to completely surrender to it, go to the heart of it and die into it. And it's just like surrender and inquiry just are the most magical things when paired, really. And it kind of finds you dying into it was something that really came about, I think. Yeah, it's interesting because the average person would look at you or would have looked at you several years ago when you started going through this and said, you know, what's this kid got to suffer about? He's healthy, he's well-fed, you know, he's living in a warm house. But obviously you're talking about a completely internal thing where the 
really the alienation from your true nature was causing suffering. Would it be fair to say that? Yeah, you've, I think you've really hit the nail on the head where you kind of dead end everything that, I mean, on one hand, you can say a lot of people, especially in the UK, America, like we've got the survival down to a T. We've got food, we've got a shelter. I couldn't be more grateful for a happy childhood even to, to an extent. It's almost as if that, that added to this inner fury. Everything that ended, it couldn't be money that was going to provide happiness. It couldn't be relationships. It couldn't be all these things. I was out of luck. I was out of anything. And then even spirituality became the last thing because spirituality and enlightenment was this thing I could now chase that was beyond the physical. And I could kind of turn my nose up at everyone else and say, look, they don't really get it. I get it. I'm onto enlightenment. Did you and do that for a while? End. And then I got to the end of that as well. And that is, that is the most horrible discovery to know that even the inner work was just another money or relationship or thing. And to an extent, I wouldn't say that's even bad. I think you have to chase spirituality. You have to chase enlightenment to really find that that really there is enlightenment, but it's not what we think. It's completely radically different. It's just transcending who you even are. So it, yeah, it just dead ended everything, including spirituality. Yeah. And. You know that, I don't know in the UK, but when we were kids in the US, we sometimes would play this game where you're trying to guess something and the person would say you're getting warmer or you're getting colder, you know, as you moved closer and closer to what it was you were supposed to guess. And, uh, you know, I would say that spirituality, even in the sense that you put it just now, you're getting warmer. It's not like <laughs> drug use or going yeah. to parties all night or anything like that. You're on the right track, but obviously... There are degrees of maturity and the approach to spirituality. Yeah, it's like the upside down pyramid. I always say with all these things you can choose from and you try and get closer and closer to truth. And it's almost as if spirituality is getting to the root slightly more. But then even in then if you open up spirituality, you've got all these things which nothing wrong with them, like mindfulness really helps um, breath work astral projection, all these things. But if you want to get even closer to the core of that, like what is the root of suffering? Like what am I not looking at? What am I avoiding? And what can be inquired into or surrendered to? And it's always a root. There's always the root, the self, the misidentification with a separate self, the belief in separation, just this simple belief triggers all of these branches of suffering that we can trim all day long with all these symptoms and plasters and or band-aids, whatever you call it in America. But like many people get is completely sick of just healing this self. But then you turn around and try and find the one you're trying to heal and you're like, you can't find it. So there can be healing, but is there a person that's healed? Is there a self that's even progressing? Is there a solid entity that's even making any kind of progress? And this is what, in a way, it's paradoxical because you say there's nothing to do and, you know, spirituality is a um, waste of time or something some people say. But really, if you're honest, there's an effortless effort that you can look in the right places to uproot the fuel behind this. This is what a lot of people don't understand. It's like, okay, there's no self, but can you see that there's no self? And does that drop away? And is that seen with clarity and luminosity? I think is what most people get stuck with is you can see through self for a glimpse, but then all the mind identifications hits you like a train again. And it's all there, these conditionings. Yeah, I'm glad you used the word paradox. I've used that word so many times on this show that somebody once sent me a t-shirt that had the word paradox on it. There's so many things that are paradoxical in in this field. There were like a dozen things in the statement you just made that are paradoxical or something is, it's this, but it's not this. And it's also that. And uh, we can dig into some of them. 
just really quickly because you said sure. something the other day. You talk about a pendulum a lot between, I think it was a video with Adi Shanti or someone, but it was so true with the pendulum on one hand. Sometimes when we break out of mind, we're so in, involved in this no self that this no self becomes, or this non-separation becomes so amazing. But then the other shoe drops and it comes back to humanity, the human form, the relative level where we want to integrate, you know, where the emotions are, where all these things are. And people either get stuck sometimes up here because it's such an amazing experience, but that's what it is, an experience. And then it comes back, well, we are still in humans. There's a form here. There's a speaking between me and you. And it comes back this way, like you said. And then eventually it kind of goes back. It goes, goes, goes. And then you can walk this delicate line of seeing through cells but not disregarding your humanity. Yeah. I think that's the dance. It's that, that kind of skill of getting in the middle. Yeah, maybe that's why the Zen masters used to whack people with a stick. Someone yeah. would say, I am not the body. Okay, whack, how's that? <laughs> <laughs> that's the thing. But when you're through Zoom, you can't really do that. So <laughs> right, <yeah. laughs> There's a woman Mama. named Jessica Nathanson, whom I'm going to interview next week. She has a website called The Glorious Both And. And I first became aware of her because of a series of conversations she had with Tim Freak. If you know Tim, I think he lives up in Glastonbury. He's been on Batgap a few times. But her whole thing was she had this awakening and then she dove into what we might call neo-advaita. And she feels like it really dehumanized her and, be, and disassociated her. And she just felt so it was in a bad place. And so she's kind of on a campaign to promote integration and balance and living the paradox fully. There's so many traps. It's funny because I feel like the deeper you go, the traps become almost more subtle, but deeper. Razor's edge. Yeah, when you come back to the humanity thing, then you can almost take on this, I am a human, a heroic trauma healer. And there's so much trauma to be healed. But if you get stuck in just doing that and almost take on the self again, because the self wants to be this hero that is doing this for like humanity or doing it for themselves to be loved all the time. And I think even there, the self can operate in a way that's trying to progress with this stuff. So in the middle, it's like, on one hand, there's no solidity to me. There's no person here, but at the same time, there is conditioning. There is a momentum of behaving in a way that's not aligned with that seeing of no self. I really like that website title. I'm going to look at it after. On the upcoming interviews page, there's a link to her website. One of my favorite quotes was from the old Buddhist sage, Padmasambhava. He was said to have said, although my awareness is as vast as the sky, my attention to karma is as fine as a grain of barley flour. So in other words, vast awareness and yet minute, precise attentiveness to the human value, to the relative value, to the act, to the behavior, and so on. I think Jeff Foster said... um you can honor the wave without turning your back to the ocean. Like, you know, you don't have to forget you're made of water. There is a skill, there's an art to it. It really is a dance. If you make it to science, it's all intellectual, it's all inquiry, it's all this, but there has to be a surrender at some point. There has to be a complete letting go of the raft. And that's the scariest thing, this void that appears, or that was always there, but we're always running from. Did you ever see Jeff's uh, cartoon, The Advaita Trap, on YouTube? No, I didn't, but I'd like it's to see it. It's cute. Look it up. It's basically these cartoon characters, and it's based upon a, an experience Jeff had with his mother, where they were walking in some park, and his mother said, oh, look at the beautiful tree. And Jeff goes into this thing. Jeff, the cartoon character, goes into the thing. 
there is no beauty, there are no trees, you know. <laughs> yeah. I remember he said that about his dad. He said something about the same with his dad, yeah. It's true. There's no warmth to it. There's no warmth to the teaching. It kind of seems a bit off. It's definitely so good, like a whack on the head for just getting out of seeking, but there's no warmth. It's strange. But at the same time, I can see why. But all that has to be done is to notice who wants liberation more, because it's just another identity on that side. I suppose how we we might be able to summarize what we've been talking about for the last few minutes is spiritual development, if we want to call it that, there's many things we could call it, is a multidimensional undertaking. You can't isolate yourself in one dimension of it to the exclusion of the others. There has to be this holistic, well-rounded, balanced development. Would you agree with that terminology? Yeah. I think it's down to like a spiritual maturity. I remember starting out and I was looking for a practice, a truth, a thing I could do enough of in order to achieve this plateau of enlightenment, this final ground of bliss and happiness. And everyone's going to like me. I'm going to have the best job in the world. And I'm going to be so spiritual that the books that I sell are going to go bestseller. I'm going to be the next Eckhart Tolle. We've all had it. Okay. (laughs) And eventually you have to mature enough to see that you have to die. Really. You have to see this as a death in some ways, I think, because I was on the impression that I could achieve, 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 or see through self, become so enlightened. I remember walking through the forest, blissed out. I was blissed out. I had no sense of, well, the body was almost seemed to be completely empty of any solidity. It was as if I wasn't even really there. Like, I remember there's a tennis, you know, Djokovic, the tennis player. Oh, yeah, sure. He described it best, which is strange, that he was playing tennis, and at one moment he just felt who he was, this person, it just wasn't there. It was vacant. But, but the aliveness was still there. Life was still going. And I'm thinking this was it. And, but something deep down in me, the seed knew. It's always been the case. Whenever something's come about, it doesn't hang around for long, these realizations, because if you've got true authenticity, true honesty, you know that there's something more to look at. There's something that's, well, who's experiencing this bliss? Who's the self that is it enlightened? Who's the self that is these things? And on the realization that you're everything or the realization that you're nothing, this, there's always still a slight experiencer of that, a kind of progressor through that. Then the course took a very dark turn where, yeah, broken out of mind identification, everything that I thought I was, I saw through, but then all the momentum of the previous conditionings, the karmic, all the conditions just came flying back because they wanted to be looked at. You know, it was a case of no stone being left unturned. It came back with more force. It came back with more rage, anger, all these things, they had to be looked at now. There was nothing that could hide. It was like reality was forcing me to look at every single way that I was not being honest with my self-image, who I thought I was, you know, these constant, we're always bartering with life, trying to trade off with life, trying to, if I do this enough, I'll be more happy this thing. And I had to really die into this process of, 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 of almost it took a turn into, into no self rather than all self. And then the will, when the will starts dissolving, it's game over. Because no matter how much you try to get back this will of, I can do enough inquiry to meditate, or I can, it's like surrender just floods your body. I was never to credit for any of this. I, and then it's like, whatever you do now is not your will, it's God's will. There's no you. <laughs> and this is going somewhere that you can't guide. And then 
you have no option but to let go of the reins because if you, if you hold on to those reins again you will get the strongest burn in your hand you've ever had because you know you're not in control it's like you're fighting your own illusion and then eventually the lights are turned on so much you see so much that you can't kid yourself anymore you can't keep yourself asleep you have to face every single trauma that that was there every single relationship issue all this feelings of not being lovable or not being good enough or anger all these things it's brutal but it's the most worthwhile thing that unfolds Maybe somebody who's listening right now could do us a favor and find that Nisargadatta quote where he says something like, when I see myself as everything, then such and such. But then when I see myself as nothing, then such and such. And between these two, my life flows. You know that quote? Yeah, I think it's like with the love and then the wisdom and then. Yeah. yeah. So a couple of questions came in. Let me just ask those. This is a question from someone named Ajay Maharaj in Canada. In the bio that I read, it states that you were seeking to find the truth and see through the illusion of separation. Can you speak on what that looked like for your close personal relationships, including family? Yeah, so that could be split up into the seeking on one hand and then the seeing through separation on the other. I'm not sure how it re- the seeking relates to family. It's- I think what there is, well as family, as well as just the relative world, the seeking, I think, takes you out of, I remember being almost disinterested in these personal relationships that used to be, of course, family's always there on a relative level, but there was this need to see through relationship at the same time, almost a retreat from relationship, a retreat from jobs, money, uh, I was doing a degree, sports, all these things, there was a retreat from that. So the seeking could go inward because all of these people that I had relationships with, or the career path, or the sport, or all these things, there was still a self that was doing that. And I'm not someone that thinks you have to be in a cave the whole time in, in this, but I, I do really think that a period of time of retreat in oneself is so beneficial because you can just let the noise just simmer for a bit, let the silence grow. And in that silence is what really you're needing to look at in isolation sometimes just looking for this and i keep using this because it's like you're no longer invested in i remember just being completely disinterested because i knew there's dead ends to all these things i'm not saying the dead end to family but people sometimes even i see it they hope to get a family and then they get the family and there's love there's all these things but there's still this agitation this need to find truth not in a material good and these things and there's still this looking for that self and the seeking really went inward with, I'd say, radical, radical inquiry, this had to be known. I was a delivery driver for about a year, three or four years ago now, but I would take the inquiry home. It wasn't because I was forcing it, it was because I was generally so interested that I couldn't find myself anywhere. I couldn't find this person that was seeking. I couldn't find Matt. I couldn't find when delivery driving out and about in the senses, in the, in the experience of self, when talking to people, when delivering food, when using the physical body, I could feel sensations, but like, where did I end? Where did the sensations start? When I was talking to someone, when I was looking at their eyes, was I looking at them or where are they located in the body? So the inquiry became so interwoven. Everything became like that message or whatever came through everything there. There was no distraction. So this could be done not just on the cushion, like I said, in the retreat, but then you started taking it into the world, this inquiry, this, you know, seeing the emptiness of objects. I remember when emptiness came into my life in the form of the insight of emptiness, you could see that there really was no objects. 
not just the emptiness of self, not just the emptiness of subject, but the emptiness of what I perceive. I remember doing it on my mum at one point. I was like, well, this sounds really horrible, but if I was to really say, where is my mum? If I was to like take off the arms, is she in the arms? <laughs> or Did you tell her that? or you? <laughs> I was just beheading her. <laughs> no, I was trying to find where she was or anyone. And then I thought, okay, she's behind the eyes. But then I was thinking with myself, well, if I'm behind the eyes, let's go to the exact particle where I am. Let's really find this particle, this subject, this self that I keep referring to all day that I'm trying to protect, trying to make enlightened. And all I could find was empty sensations. There was just more sensations kind of like the brain, where the brain seemed to be. And then even that I could be aware of prior to that. So it was inquiry into self foremost. And in not finding the self, I think it opens up this opportunity, for lack of a better word, to deepen the no self aspect of that the dying into nothingness and anyway we're talking about the entity subjects but yeah it was rob burby if anyone's interested i just want to get anyone into rob burby sadly he passed away but what, he, what's that name rob burby rob uh, r-o-b and then b-u-r-b-e-a he was a buddhist brilliant teacher down in devon i believe in he England. has videos on youtube he, he didn't, he was like Ramana Maharshi in the way that he didn't want anyone to, actually he didn't want video, there's loads of audio tapes, so if you just type it into Google, he is brilliant for emptiness, he's got a book called Seeing That Freeze, if anyone's interested, he opened me up to the world of emptiness, he had this thing where he said, and this is what clicked emptiness for me, it's one day I sat in my chair and I was deep into contemplating what he meant, because if, if I don't understand something, you have to kind of sit with it in a silence without an agenda to know. I just remember just sitting with it. And he said, we have objects, right? So let's say you have a, a mug like this. We see this mug as a solid object. He took a chair and he said, he started burning the chair in this metaphor. And he said, when does the chair become not a chair into the pile of ashes? You see how at one point it's a solid. And then if you look at it later, it's just rubble on the floor, ashes. So this opens up this fragility of what we say is an object i realized i could start doing this to everything every object like a car for example we say that's a mercedes that's a object so i'm sorry doing that that's a bmw but if you were to take the logo off the bmw slowly start taking parts off at what point does it not become a bmw car anymore when it's completely unrecognizable so i could see the fragility of this world of perception of subject object and this was more just seeing the emptiness in objects before it was turned into an inquiry of the subject of these objects so yeah that was a big shifting point i think yeah that's great people have been doing this for thousands of years you can read the mandukya upanishad or the ostravakra gita and books like that and this is the way they talk they go so far as to say the universe never manifested in the first place it's just a mistake of the intellect to perceive that it has and things like that and modern physics physics will tell you that if you boil everything down to a, a microscopic enough level, there's no physicality to be found. It's just probabilities and energies, <laughs> all that stuff. I've always been fascinated with the juxtaposition of spirituality and modern science, particularly physics. And a lot of people are interested in that because through these modern tools, we're finding that these ancient wisdom teachings are true. and They just had a different way of going about it. One thing you said, you alluded to it in the last few minutes, but I also listened to it in some of your YouTube videos, 
You know how we were talking earlier about integration and balance and holistic development and all that? There are some of the things you've said, which to my mind leaned a little heavily on not having ambition or initiative or motivation and, and stuff like that. And I, I think that those things can be balanced with detachment and with surrender. Like at the time you were interviewed by Angelo, you were working in a clothing store and you were like either on the door or on the cash register. And I thought, well, this guy, he's a smart guy, so much potential. He can do more than that with his life. So if you were to be satisfied with that as your life, I kind of see spiritual development as a full blossoming of our potentialities. And I think that a lot of the great scientists and composers and writers and people like that were actually highly evolved people. And they had unlocked certain potentials that they expressed through their art or their science. I don't think there's any reason why an enlightened person couldn't also be a great musician or scientist or something like that. He doesn't just have to work in a dumb job. Yeah. Before I go into the striving, because I think striving is probably one of the best traits you can have for spiritual awakening. If you're striving inward, if you're striving to be open, vulnerable, curious in reality, you've got everything you need to go the whole way. Which you were doing. I mean, you weren't just sort of ho-hum, I guess I'll just drive this delivery truck. I mean, you were, you know, uh, inquiry the whole time. I think that's why I keep my private life quite separate because what I'm doing in my actual job, which isn't clothing store, it's it's funny, I, I love the clothing store job because there's so much interaction, there's so much ways that someone can pull you out into your shadow and express this. I mean, working in a clothing store in Oxford Street, you're going to be at your wit's end on rage at times the amount on black friday i remember just thinking this is the best if anyone's become enlightened get a job at urban outfits on oxford street and work black friday weekends it's like round dust when you say go spend a week with your family it's the same right right so the clothing shop was a practicality for me to move to london in the midst of a um pandemic yeah it was it was rent through the roof and so my actual job is in documentary filmmaking and um making adverts for like commercial work. You have that job now. Yeah, yeah. And as you said, when you can go into creative, I, I like to keep it separate, this whole thing, this, but I could talk about it anyway now because I think it might help people that are also into the creative world. Everything I've ever made now, the freedom you get in art without having to t- take credit for it, without having to feel like you're doing it, you're the doer of it, also not being bound by limitation in what can be created. I think the only reason that I've, managed to carve a career in my filmmaking is because of this unfolding and now i realize i've never made anything it's just happened through me just like this podcast for you happened through you it's beautiful podcast and you've just opened the channel for this whatever your being is sometimes it feels like oh this is difficult i don't want to give up my credit for this but in giving up the credit for the artwork and giving up the doership it just flows it flows and it flows and people hone in on it the best music i've ever seen Djokovic, when he's playing tennis, he doesn't even feel like he's there. This is why he's so good. You look at David Bowie or Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson said, I know there's a lot of controversy with him, but Michael Jackson once said, let's be honest, he's one of the most influential people in music, most popular with his music. And he said at one point, something along the lines of it was just him dancing in the moon and, and he disappeared. Or again, like Djokovic, this no self is creeping into the people at the top of art world or music or these things. It's like they're tapping into non-duality and expressing it through them, or it's using them to express. And people around the world can 
something deep in them knows that. And that's why they're so successful, I feel. Yeah. And somebody like Djokovic, I mean, if you have a serve coming at you at 130 miles an hour, you have to be on autopilot. Of course, you have to have a lot of training and you have to have the right physiology and everything. But the greatest athletes often speak of this kind of experience where they're just in this deep witnessing state and things are just happening automatically. Yeah. Even if you weren't into non and you didn't have experiences, you're not really there anyway. In a way, it's all the training's already been done and there's no room for any kind of thinking, oh, it's 180 miles this way. I need to. No. You're, you know, <laughs> whereas if it's something like darts where you're in your head, and you're right. thinking, and you're thinking, and you're thinking, or pool, or snooker, or whatever. It's so different. But you started to touch on striving, which I think is really good. And I think the same thing, where if someone is taking this message as, oh, there's nothing really to do, this is all play, I can just go and drink a beer, that's aversion to me. That's avoidance. One thing that Angelo taught me, and I think Angelo is one of my most powerful teachers in his ability to point without giving you candy for the mind, he commented on something the other day. He said, the best practice really for awakening is a life well lived. Like if you live your life well and thoroughly, first of all, your life kind of gives way. There's no, the you gives way. And, but what, what he means by this, I think, is that if you lean into life, you get everything out of the shadows, face everything with honesty and brutal authenticity, you will wake up because the aversion seeps away and like you said the need to wake up kind of overtakes the need to be comfortable because let's be honest people look at people who are young or something but we've had lifetimes of suffering i think we're just sick of it the people into this path and they just want to go the full way now they want to wake up now and the sad thing is i see so many people into this stuff but they get sidetracked into i'm not saying any of these are bad but like certain practices that want the self and keep hold of the self and they don't just want to sit in an empty quiet room and face a brick blank wall and just let all the suffering come up and all the pain come up and just to surrender to that because that is the best practice as well it's just silence basically yeah so there's a couple of points here one is uh, the striving point and another is the doership point and a question came in on the doership point from charlie melk m-e-l-k in wapaka wisconsin this is the age-old question does free will exist? And if so, what is its role in awakening? I've never heard a good explanation of the relationship between free will and determinism, or at least one I could learn from and apply to my own spiritual development. So let's keep this as non-intellectual as we can, but still attack it in a way that hopefully sheds light. Because the first thing I'd say is once we think about things, what we try and do with, with thought really is avoidance of what's here and right now. So anything that's here right now, especially free will, we can investigate anything. Let's get out of philosophical debates, not this person, but philosophical debates about free will determinism. The only way we are going to ever look into this is right here, right now, in this moment, in experience, in the sensations. We have to go prior to thought because if we, if we try and figure out thought with thought, we're just a dog chasing its tail. So these things like free will, I would say investigate. First of all, on a relative level, there has you know, to be able to hold people accountable for bumping into your car or killing your dog. <laughs> you know, there's going to be free will there. I, I'm not saying that, but in my experience, when I investigated free will, I could never find this will, this personal will that I supposedly had. And I would say, can you even find where you first made a decision. Can you find, not only can you find the one that's making the decision, but can you find these decisions? Because if you even look into the science aspect, this is still an investigation of now. 
you know the whole experiment where the thoughts were firing the neurons like 10 seconds before it even fired. And so this kind of inquiry can lead you to a place of total exertion where it really does feel like if you trace everything back to the Big Bang, it's almost as if the conditions are here for something to happen. Even me to come onto this call with you, your neurons fired to watch Angelo's thing, something in you wanted Angelo. Angelo made a video once that this is all God's will. I can't find this separate self that's doing this. I can't find all of this. There's so much freedom in that if you don't take it in a way of attachment or inversion because people take this and then they'll go and sit on the sofa and say, there's no free will. I've been doing what I want. But that's them resisting that insight and not facing what that truly means, which is, no, now you have no free will over your suffering. And when you give up free will and suffering, it has full reign to show itself, flower itself and be processed or, or seen through. I think it's another one of those multidimensional paradox things. Take the Bhagavad Gita, for instance. There are verses such as, you have control over action alone, never over its fruits. Live not for the fruits of action, nor attach yourself to inaction. So there are these verses where Lord Krishna is saying to Arjuna, do something. Here's what I want you to do. Take initiative. And then there are other verses where it says, you are not the doer. And the, the, the enlightened person realizes, I do not act at all. And everything is the will of God or whatever that's carrying it on. So why would he state two completely contradictory things in one book? And I think the reason is knowledge is different in different states of consciousness, at different levels of consciousness, different levels of spiritual maturity. And you can't appropriate the truth of one level to a level that you yourself are not living. If you experience yourself as having volition, then you have to exercise it wisely. If it's your experience that everything is really the will of God, then no problem. It will all carry on automatically. You know, when people do this misappropriation, they get themselves into trouble. There was recently a teacher who was embroiled in a scandal where he was sleeping with a lot of young women who were coming to him as students and uh, in spite of the fact that he was married and so on. And when that was discovered, he started coming out with all these excuses like, oh, I am not the doer or it's just God doing it. It's the will of God and all this stuff. So it's just um, kind of a BS misapplication of a beautiful teaching. So I think the whole free will determinism thing, maybe ultimately there's absolutely no free will. But if we experience ourselves as having it, then don't use an intellectual concept of there being no free will as a tool in your daily life. Just be who you are, where you are, and be genuine. Otherwise, it can cause confusion and get you into trouble. Yeah, no, you've hit the nail on the head because if someone's going to be brutally honest, if someone ever says to me, look, my sense of self has fallen away completely, it's never returned. That, to me, there needs to be a fragrance of self. Because if someone's to call your name and you don't turn around, then that is dropped away. Exactly. This, this is the expectation people have. They're like, enlightenment, you blissed out. You no, you just see through the reality of that ego. You don't lose the ability to speak, the ability to turn. The, even when I'm driving my car and I hit someone, or not that I have ever... <laughs> Let's That's why you lost your delivery driver job, right? <laughs> you had to get into a clothing industry. <laughs> but like you say, let's say I was delivering someone and I, I dropped all their shopping or, or I on purpose or, or whatever by accident hit them. In this moment, you have to admit on the relative level to the character, yeah, you could I, say, I screwed, up. I screwed up. It wasn't you. But this is the dimensional thing. 
how deep do we want to go into this? How prior do we want to go to this beyond all of this? Because if you were to take it out, you could look at even the two of you arguing and you're beyond the two arguments, the will of this person, will of that person. But in the moment, I don't think it's the best thing to be in a state of absolutist no self because if your child had just fallen over or an old lady needed help, if I went into no self absolutist, I need to go into my character as the human to be able to help her across the road in my form. Like we just swing the pendulum all day. Yeah, yeah. Until we walk that line. And there was something you said that I really want to touch on because it was good. This whole will, if you're premature to some of these teachings, especially emptiness, especially will, you take it, the mind takes it as, oh, I can use this to make myself more comfortable, happy. I can, I can now say it's fine to t- play video games all day or be horrible to my mum or dad because there's no free will. Like Jeff Foster said with the beauty of the tree, that there's no beauty, there's no truth. This is just not true or not close to truth. I say what's close to the truth is when you've really exhausted the will, even desire. I remember someone said the other day, they said, quite fun, I hope this is all I'm talking about. They said, I have the desire to go meet a prostitute. I would never say what to do. I just said, in another case, though, when desire is there, the prostitute is not a good example, but if there's a desire there, you need to not suppress it, feel it, inquire into it, the one that's doing it, the one that, because when we suppress the desires, you just have another form of resistance, another form of shame, guilt, all these things. And this doesn't help at all. But with the will, back to the will, if you go to the edge of the will and you and you see that you hit the ceiling, I love when Adi Shanti said, you really do hit the ceiling of what you can do because at a certain point, inquiry even loses its ability to see through things, even emotional work. It's like you're out on a raft to sea, I was saying. All these things have gotten you out to the middle of the ocean, but the truth is at the bottom. You have to let go of the raft and like sink without practice without your own will without any kind of knowledge or way through i feel that could be taken on different levels but only really flowers sometimes when it's needed but all these practices and things are so powerful i feel they just sometimes need to be let go of and that includes the will yeah two thoughts on what you just said one about the desires we don't just act on any desire that happens to pop into our heads. I don't care what state you're in. There's a value to discernment, discrimination. And you might be tempted to, let's say you're working in the clothing store and um, some customer was being impatient and gnarly with you. You might have an impulse to say something to tell them off, but you know you can check that desire. You're not going to cause irreparable frustration, harm to yourself or anything. It's just a, there's a wisdom to being able to hold one's tongue or to check one's impulses if they're inappropriate. The second thing is about the pendulum thing. It's never all or nothing. A pendulum gives the impression like it's way over here, but it's not going to be over here. What I'm I'm kind of suggesting that it's more like a zoom lens on a camera. You're a camera guy where you might focus in on a particular thing, but you also still see the background. Like my image right now is focused on me, but you can still see the background. And maybe you zoom to the background and I become blurry. But in any case, if we're really developed, there's always going to be the no self, silence, non-doing dimension. And there's going to be the kind of divine, everything is perfect just as it is dimension. And there's going to be the, oh, we have problems here. This child just fell down or is is about to run in front of a car or something like that dimension. And you don't ever focus exclusively on one to the exclusion of the others. It's just more of a matter of the zoom lens going to what's appropriate at that time. 
yeah, you, I think I'll never use the pendulum again now because this is such a good, this thing that you talked about. Because like you say, all this is really is a stepping back, a widening of the lens. And what I like about that is when you're in the humanity thing, it does feel like a getting closer. It does feel like a leaning in. Sometimes when it's emotional, like I just say, just lean into it until there's no you and it. You're, we're, we're almost going in and in and in, almost like an, a tantric approach to that. And and the going back and back and back and back. I'd also say as well, like you say, it's less like that way or this way, or even zooms in and zooms out. There's almost a case of you can stay in the silence, even in the noise of becoming a or taking the form of human, you start to never forget the silence. Yeah, you have no choice after a while. Exactly, exactly. So if someone sat there and they were really mind identified, it's almost as if it takes more effort to be in the silence. And eventually, being the silence is your state anyway, and it takes more effort to suffer, more effort to have to think, to create these illusions and kid yourself again that the separation has any reality to it. Yeah, in fact, I think it was Angelo. When I was listening to your interview with Angelo, he was saying that for him... The more crazy the situation, and I think he's an, he's an emergency room doctor, isn't he? The more crazy the situation, the more he notices the silence because the contrast is greater or something. Yeah, I remember he said that, and it, it gave the same thing of, oh, this can be done anywhere. This can be seen anywhere. And there's times where I was um, in the silence. My mind was the most noisy at that point. So it's, it's that same thing again. It just shows people if Andrew can do it, with the stress of his job, I have nothing to say about anything in my life. Unless I was suddenly amputated with everything and I had no prospects. He has the most stuff on his plate up until that point. In terms of professional jobs, I think, having something like that and to be able to still do that. I know other people who are doctors and they've read and seen Andrew's stuff and had so much courage to do their stuff because before it was just an excuse. They didn't have time. We didn't have a thing. Even delivery driving, I would have probably said before, this is, we're not doing it 10 hours a day. There's no time to sit and meditate. Okay, I'll take the meditation to the delivery van driving. I'll take it to the conversations. I'll take it to going to the toilet. Where do I end and where does the toilet start? This kind of stuff. I want to take this back to striving because I remember one of the things I wanted to really talk about today was that this can be done by anyone. And yes, relative world, there are going to be problems where you've got to do a job or maybe your degree is taking over. But eventually, if you're really wanting this and more than you want something in the land of careers or money, and you don't have to cut them down, but you can incorporate this and orient towards this until this is your priority. And you don't forget anything else. You just orient towards this whilst doing these things. And you can go the full way. Anyone can. Yeah. There's a principle we might call the highest first. In other words, you don't eliminate all other things, but you prioritize so you know this is your first priority and then and as jesus said you know seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and all else should be added unto thee so you don't lose everything else you actually gain more if this inner development or whatever we want to call it is your highest priority yeah i I so resonate with that what came to mind when you're saying there as well is the realization of the amount of suffering it took to try and put happiness in these other things like careers and these things it doesn't mean trust me post-awakening i've been even more involved in filmmaking because there's no agenda to use it for happiness because there's no agenda it opens up this complete freedom to create and do stuff and still make a living out of it and when there's no agenda because you look i i was talking to another guy the other day he's a musician and before the awakening he was making music in order to i'll say his name as well yihan jihan i think his name was i just want to put his name out there because he's such a lovely guy 
he was making music before and it was almost like an agenda. He had to make something in order. Post-Awakening, you see that there's nothing in that substance-wise that's going to bring happiness. There's no fulfillment there. And suddenly you're free in the realm of music to create with no... If there's money involved, of course, it becomes tricky, but it just opens up this freedom um, to create without sustaining, I don't know, some hope that this is going to fill me up. Yeah. And I don't know how we want to define happiness, but I wouldn't say that it brings no happiness, but it's more like icing on the cake. I'm sure that this fellow derives fulfillment by creating his music and it's, it's a joy to him. He'd rather be doing that than just sitting staring at a wall or something. But he probably would also be content just staring at a wall. So it's an add-on. You get to have the fulfillment and do something that is a joy and perhaps is a benefit to other people. It goes from exactly that, from this will find me wholeness, this thing, to this thing is just a celebration of the wholeness. I remember thinking at one point, because relationships to me, especially intimate relationships, were such a hotbed of resistances and suffering. And there's so much validation and security. And we've run into this. There's so much there to be deepened with self, because that's why I think the self operates so much as well. And you can sense when someone just energy wise wants something from you in the room or something or some kind of validation, even relationship, because they're thinking this person will fulfill me, will fill me up, will add to this wholeness to me. But then if you've ever sat with someone, I don't know if you have, where they just feel really content in themselves. They don't really want anything from me. But oh, yeah. say, what's the difference between these two people? I'd say this person feels the fullness, feels complete. And the laughter, the, the things you share, a celebration of that wholeness. Whereas anyone else usually is looking as with an agenda to either manipulate you, to get them to like you or to attach to them. Or it's just slight perspective change that happens, not through force, but through a seeing that there is no... There's no separation. There cannot be anything to attain, to lose um, in this case. Yeah. You know that phrase from the 23rd Psalm, my cup runneth over. I'm not a big Bible expert or anything, but my grandmother used to read that to me when I was a kid. I think of that often because it's like when my cup runneth over, when you are full within yourself, then you naturally overflow. And if you're not, then you can't really overflow in the sense of, the kind of person you just referred to that who is content with themselves and you feel the the overflow when you're in their presence i think that the more deeply awake one is the more one's personality blossoms it's not like you become more a bland emotionless person but you become more vibrant more alive and the more it benefits others i just one more thought before i lose it you know that saying man is made in the image of god when you were talking about the value of fullness rising in waves and the, the joy of creating this and doing that. If we're made in the image of God, maybe that thing you described is a reflection of what God himself is doing. Because, you know, you can imagine prior to the manifestation of the universe, there's just sort of the God in resting pose, as it were, you know, just flat oneness. And then I am one may become many. It rises up in waves and there's a value added. There's a, some joy in the whole show, you know, the whole creation that is more than just the unmanifest value by itself. Yeah. You move from wholeness. But someone said to me, how is it different? What is it different? And when you're not moving from this as if God's moving through you, if you're putting in this effort constantly to take credit for your actions and this doership and this thing, this energy, all the energy it sucks out of all the blame and guilt and effort striving with these things, you're missing out on the truth reality of 
it really is just God's will moving through you. And the beauty and the joy that you're talking about there, it's almost as if beauty and joy is synonymous with this seeing. What's the difference as well? Let's investigate this as well. Like how can people see into it? I think it's the word is resistance as well, because when you're resisting, you're basically saying you're going against the universe. You're saying you don't trust God. You don't trust the universe in this moment because you'd be saying, no, I know best here. I shouldn't have this feeling. I shouldn't have this thought. You're going against billions of years of evolution to get to this state. All this evol- the amount of naivety I had or most humans have to say that this moment is wrong is basically saying, you know, best over God. But then once you really let God show, and I don't want to keep using the word God, let's call it universe because it puts people off. I find. Well, let's just define it quick. Let's call God, if we're going to use that word, this all pervading intelligence, which is running the show from the subatomic to the galactic levels. Yeah, exactly. I am going to keep using the word universe now just because I've that's seen okay. it, but that's a perfect description. But when you're going against the universe, there's so much suffering in that because when you go with the universe, there's no you anymore to do it. There's just this aliveness. It's like the weather patterns. They just come together and this body's temporary. But what sees through my eyes and sees through your eyes is exactly the same and it's beyond all of that. We're just playing a game. So when someone says, I look at you now and I see myself beyond your form and my form, that is the absolutist view and you can fall into that, this beauty of it. And what the piece I think comes is this seeing through doership. Because when you see through doership, you realise there's not a single thing, there's no space for anything to be out of place. There's no gaps where things could, oh, that could have slightly gone wrong there. Every single thing that's ever happened in my life showed me an aspect of reality I wasn't looking at. All these wrong things, the suffering things, all these things. And when you really see that, now anything that comes to you in the future is now more an opportunity to deepen. There's something I'm not quite looking at here. And there's nothing wrong. The universe is just about timed it right. You said something earlier there where you said some people shouldn't be opened up to all of this straight away. Their body minds couldn't handle it. But the universe will just give you little pieces until, you know, Ramana Maharshi, he had it, bam, his apple was ripe to drop whenever he was. But then he was in this state of, he was having rats eat away or something. Yeah, yeah, his legs were being gnawed on by insects. And then he got out of that pit and he went up on the mountain and sat in a cave for many years before he was whatever he needed to be to come and start interacting with people. Exactly. So who are we to say that this is not right? Even in your life, my life, the universe is literally giving us pieces that are just right for us to open and widen our view of who we are, what reality is, what's true. And if I was to give, you know, if someone's come across a teaching that would blow their world open, they might just implode. I don't know. If someone's so mind-identified, the universe is intelligence. It, it knows what it's doing. Yeah, that's great. One analogy I use these days, which seems to fit for my life, is that it's as if we're in this play. And there is a script to the play. There's a script writer who wrote the play. But we also have permission to improvise. And so we're kind of going along and things happen. Okay, that's part of the script. But I think I'll improvise this way. Maybe that's just a halfway developmental state because maybe if I were cosmic enough, it would be just I totally go with the flow and everything is fine. But that's my orientation. I've said this many times before, but it's like the nursery rhyme, row, row, row your boat, where mainly the stream is carrying the boat along, but you still have a paddle and you can row, but you're rowing gently down the stream. So there's just little minor adjustments you make as you go along to maybe avoid this rock or whatever. 
it's like the preferences are, can still be there, but there's just the seeing of the emptiness of these preferences, the seeing that there's no one there deciding, there's no credit for this or that. Because to be honest, if you were to drop the whole notion of preference and you wouldn't be able to choose what to eat. So the character is still there. Even those preferences are completely not your doing. No, there may still be the perception that they are. You go to a restaurant, let's say, and you look at the menu and you, you ponder it for a while and you think, okay, well, you know, this one looks like it might be good. I think I'll try that. So maybe that's just automatic and you didn't have any choice in the matter. But if you perceive that you do, don't beat yourself up over it. It's just it's natural. Yeah. I think the one thing I do want people to really know, and I think I remember just thinking, this can be done if you orient towards it. If you want to go the full way, or if you want to see through self, if I can just give a bit of context, because I feel like I remember listening to Andrew and realizing how dedicated he was, the dedication that he removes. But if you sit with this inquiry and you really hold space, I think is the right word. Because if you're holding space for this surrender to unfold, if you try to do this, if you try to surrender it, there's still an agenda woven into this. There's still a need to get somewhere else to progress into this. You know, every night, if you have, every morning in the day, if you have a keen interest to go the full way and you orient towards this, everything that you think you're running from with these things, if you just sit with it, and instead of trying to practice out of it, you go to the root of why it's even there, the fuel behind it, the self in the middle of it, it drops out. The bottom of self drops out. And the suffering there, it struggles to grow back without the fuel, the fuel of separation, the fuel of belief, the fuel of resistance. This is the thing I really wanted to hammer home because I remember sat there not thinking this was, do. I thought this was for the Eckhart Tolls of the world, the Ramana Maharshis, even the Adishanti. But then I came across Adishanti and he was one of the first guys. He seemed like a normal, really normal guy. And he took the sport to the edge. He took cycling so far to the edge. And this pursuit, this striving you said, touched on the striving you need you need to exhaust seeking into the ground to finally say i don't know what i'm doing god or universe show me reveal it to me and it reveals as soon as you stop looking for it and that's kind of what happened to ajit he just has this competitive spirit so when he got into zen he was like all right i'm gonna do this to the max and he would go on these long retreats and just meditate like crazy and everything. And he finally reached a point where he thought he was going to snap. And he, he left in the middle of a retreat and went home and he had this little meditation hut in his parents' backyard. And he just went in there and he said, I give up, you know, that's it. And boom, and then he had his big awakening. <laughs> How true is like any insight that ever really come about, in my experience anyway, is sometimes I'm just staring out to sea or if I'm just sat. Because in that moment, I think the groundwork could be put in, the inquiry, the exhaustion, but then it kind of just flowers when you're least expecting it because that's when the will takes a break for a second. That's when the agenda, the pursuit bottoms out for a bit. But Aja might tell you, and probably would, that he wouldn't have had that awakening if he hadn't done all that striving. Yeah, a lot of people exhaust themselves and in the exhaustion, they finally stop. And not a stop, like physicality stop, but they stop beyond the physicality. They just give up looking for something and they just allow the universe to show them. They hold space for something to unfold because the resistance to when, whenever you're seeking, you're resisting. Now you're saying there's something here that needs to change. When you give up seeking, you're almost giving fertile ground for like the flower to bloom, whatever you want to call it poetically. But there's a stopping that takes place. And in the stopping, you see the silence that was always there. It unfolds and you, you wonder why you were ever so caught up in all of these thoughts. You never looked at the silence between the thoughts. 
This whole thing of giving up seeking, it's kind of a popular phrase these days. Papa G once said to a group of people sitting with him, give up the search. And there are conferences about the end of seeking and websites about it and everything. I don't know. My orientation to it, and feel free to disagree or comment on it, is that there's a phase, obviously, where you, you're just not feeling much fulfillment. And so there's a kind of a desperation. Oh, man, I got to get this. I got to realize this. And But then there's a time when the fulfillment really has matured quite a bit. There's a Sanskrit word, santosh, which means contentment. So there's a contentment quality that grows. But you don't necessarily rest on your laurels at that point. There's still this enthusiasm and motivation and curiosity and realization that there's so much more to deepen and to know and to integrate and so on. But it's done more on the basis of fulfillment quality rather than a, a desperate emptiness quality. Yeah. Well, this is the taboo, I think, that you've talked on where seeking can end. And I found the seeking end. Now I'd call it clarifying. Because in a way, post-awakening, I'd say the intensity of suffering, if you want to call it suffering, maybe less of the word suffering, because there was no personal suffering, but suffering, it made me face everything and even though the seeking has stopped i think it's because the seeking had stopped i now couldn't numb myself with thinking my way out i had to face it all full on and like you say the enthusiasm yeah all the positive stuff but there's a clarifying which of death which is like a post awakening where there's a big taboo where i don't even mean for these videos that i post to gain traction i think eventually i will just stop at some point and just rest in and do the video stuff but so this just taken away from the fact that I didn't want this to really come about, but it's all God's will, whatever you want to call it. But post-awakening, the seeking has stopped, but that doesn't mean really that this has deepened to its fullest depth. Not many beings have allowed the personal will, the the death. You did an interview with um, Adyashanti, is it Suzanne? Uh, Susanna Marie. She and Adyashanti and I had this conversation. Yeah. yeah. I love that because they touched on something that I couldn't really see much online, which was the no self, the real, the, the real sense of even the center, the one that's experiencing this. Like people can stop seeking because they see they're everything, but now let even that experience of bliss, let the experience of enlightenment really die into nothingness. Because some people still take credit for even the inquiry up until that. And that shows that there's still a residual will there. So it's almost like this. It's like this big grand thing and you go on YouTube and you sell your insights then everything comes crashing back because you need to embody this realization. You need to breathe it, live it. You know, how you converse with people. Let's put our hands up. Unless you, all your conditioning falls away. I think I was quite lucky and still am that things hit me with a, such an vengeance afterwards because I thought I was in the clear. I'd broken out of mind identification. It's almost if I woke up on the level of mind and this hadn't caught up. This was still operating at the old system this is the funniest thing you can't go around it you have to go through it each time it's like the animals come running at you and you just get trampled and the only way you can do it is really face whatever's running at you and see what they're trying to tell you because every single trauma that comes up every single bit of suffering that comes up to me i can only speak from experience was something that i wasn't looking at in reality either my self-image maybe it was something i was denying maybe i didn't feel good enough but i tried to be a better filmmaker in order to put up with that, validation in how I looked, maybe. All of these things you have to let die. And like you said, the seeking stops, but I feel like the clarifying is where it's brutal. If you want to go the full way, reality is looking at you like this. And you have to face each of your resistances, each of your things until there's no stone left 
and turn. And then that to me is the start of embodiment because it's not that you're now blissed out and happy. You lose the ability to resist. The truth doesn't care about happiness. This is aliveness. This is the realization. This is the end of chasing happiness. This is the start of seeing truth through this integration. Um, and even integration loses its term because it implies it never was integrated. It's just like you say, these depths of awakening. And I think the only people that really resonate even at this stage for me were, because I don't do much looking online, but definitely Adishanti, definitely Angelo, Suzanne Marie. They're the people I really recommend to others if they feel this urge, this resonation to go beyond awakening. Uh, I just changed got a video even called Beyond Awakening or something, but the one that I really like is, I think it's on his website, but anyone, it's called Beyond the Personal World. Only watch it if you're resonating with it because it can really take you to places maybe you don't want to go. <laughs> but I think everyone's going that way anyway. Check out Harry Alto sometime. You ever watch any of my interviews with Harry? How do you spell his surname? His first name is spelled differently. It's H-A-R-R-I because he's Finnish, and Alto, A-A-L-T-O. And you'll find that there's an index on the, the past interviews menu of BatGap where you can just pop that name and it'll come up. Different take than most people on all this stuff. I won't elaborate. I'll let you just check it out. So a few more questions have come in here. Here's one from somebody in your neighborhood, Darren Emerson in Jersey, UK. As part of your awakening, have you lost contact with friends and family because they no longer get you or you get them? If so, how have you reconciled it with yourself? Personally, I've found this a source of sadness, so I'm interested in your view. It's a beautiful question because it's so honest. I hope people gain something from this, basically, if I can get context for it, because there's so much alienation. We feel so alone sometimes in this path, which is funny because we're all looking for this oneness. But I say deep down, I was never getting someone. They were never getting me because as long as we're in identification and it seems like people are getting each other. I think I look at people and sometimes they used to be in envy that people seem to be able to play this characters, these things. But I think what I realized there was no fulfillment. There is to an extent, but when it's that celebration of wholeness that like we talked, but I could see more and more that I was never really celebrating this wholeness. I was never being got and I felt so alienated in this place. And so to answer your question first from dead on, Awakening, I find, is a lot more ordinary than people think. People have seen a, a huge shift in the way they speak to me, the way I am with them, because there's a difference in just the energy shift and, and these things, all these things are just words. But the ordinariness of awakening, I think, takes over. And you see, there wasn't much The only difference is that it's almost too painful to play a certain character to fit a thing. So this authenticity can come through. And the relationships you do form, I find, are just through people that resonate. You don't feel a need to be friends with people in order to get somewhere new and to validate them. And your friendships are a celebration of wholeness. Even the family stuff, you almost give up hope that these two separate entities will become the perfect relationship or these things. You just see through all of that and there's a freedom in that. And then the expression of joy through this stuff. But to take it back a step and give context for all of this, there is this big alienation that people really don't get you because when you're not living your truth, when your very mind identified, in fact, it's easier to live in the world it's easier to overlook reality overlook the truth that you're everything and play the role really well they seem to play it and people do play it well and it can be almost not too much suffering in that people go their whole lives playing these characters and that can feel alienating because something in you has this calling to go deeper and everyone else seems to not be going deeper and i remember that's what for me if this helps anyone was so isolating was that i was seeking something 
And I knew there's a burning desire, but they seem content with, there's nothing wrong by those. There's no higher or lower beings. It's just what resonates and what comes together for the body minds. But they just weren't into the same stuff. It was really difficult for me to accept that people could just be somewhat content with their body mind and not suffer too much to the extent of the thing. And eventually it overtook me that it didn't matter. I didn't need these people to understand me or do these things. And what seemed to happen as soon as I stopped looking for that in people, I've met so many people that are into non-duality and even just authentic people that aren't spirituality, but they're so true to themselves or truer than people from before that we speak and there's no need to fill a silence if I'm with them. We enjoy each other's presence. If we do talk, it's about art or film or something that cuts through the human condition and can help people or this thing. And I think that's the difference it makes is you, you start to lose your interest in relationships which aren't resonating deeply with what you've seen in this inward journey. Yeah. When I first started meditating when I was 18, um, I had to leave my friends because they were all doing drugs and I just didn't, didn't want to be around that scene anymore. And I, I left a band that I was playing in and I, I just spent a few months walking the dog every morning, you know, and I got into a community college and started doing other things with my life. But of course, I gained new friends. That's the way life always is. We're probably not in touch with most of the people that we were friends with in high school now because our lives have gone in different directions. There's an old Bengali saying, which is, if no one comes on your call, go ahead alone. Sometimes it's necessary to just go ahead alone, especially if the people you're associating with don't get what you're doing. But like family, you can always accommodate and, and be interested in the things that they're interested in when you go to visit them. I have a sister who's not interested in this kind of stuff at all. And when, when she comes to visit, we play card games or do fun stuff together. And I don't bring up politics because her politics and her husband's politics are at the extreme other end of the spectrum from mine. But we love each other. We don't always have to wear our spirituality on our chest, so to speak. And like you say, people that do and take this non-duality and put it through face, as some of us all do at the start, I think it's further than truth. Then you go into your sisters and playing cards. That's closer to truth because to push non-duality on someone is basically also not trusting the universe. Yeah. But that will come into their life at some point. And I remember with my mum, I had the similar thing. My mum, religious, but not to the extent of going like, really within and seeing through self. I remember at one point, I think I did try, you know, we all come across, it's like, mum, look for your sense of self. You don't exist, all these things. And they don't know. <laughs> and the spiritual maturity is to see, this isn't really aligned with what I think. I, I don't need to push it on people anymore because I've seen what I've seen. And if, if it resonates for them and it goes in, then that's great. But right now, all my mum needs is a hug. All my mum needs now is someone to talk to. On their perspective of life, which is not less, no more wrong, no more, this is the end of right and wrong. They don't need someone telling them there's no self. Just like the lady that crossing the street. I, like if she gets hit by a bus, I'm not going to say, well, there's no one there. She's dead. There's definitely no one there now, <laughs> but it's more just like there's just a maturity and a flexibility to the way that reality moves. Reality doesn't move that rigidly. It doesn't stay in non-duality. It moves with something that can accommodate for everything. And that's what I've seen as well. Like we said, there with your sister. Yeah, we speak on the level of the listener. There's a, an old Indian saying that when the mangoes are ripe, the branches bend down, you know, so that people can just easily pick them. The branches don't stay up on high and say, nah, nah, you can't pick me. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Okay, another question came in. This is from Ka Rudolph in Germany. 
as a tantric practitioner, I have reached a very good level of being and peace. After awakening, an extreme purification occurred, but it seems that there is no creativity and no feeling of purpose. Does this arise in the process of awakening at one time? I can't get myself going for any activity like before awakening. It's definitely a case as well. First of all, I found different body minds are hooked up definitely differently in the creative aspect. But I think this seems less of a like, all creativity, what kind of, I sense like a flatlining here. A purpose, I think, is the more the thing that can cause a bit more of a confusion because it's as if everything that we were striving for, as I say, with the dead ends, they, you get to the dead end, you realize nothing there. So then it's like this no man's land of then what? If this isn't it, it's even spirituality, even enlightenment isn't it, then what? And this purpose drips and drops away. This no man's land really is what I would call the best teacher to be silenced. There's so many gurus and teachers out there that can give you the techniques, the tantric approaches that I, I just sense this guy was into. All these things are so powerful for creating the conditions for awakening, even even mindfulness to extend to silent the mind can, can help. But there's a certain level where you do have to start to trust your intuition because, again, we're going to go into the realm of, well, I need another practice or to get purpose or this or this. I'd really orient towards, firstly, the subtle sense of self is still there because if you don't have a purpose, who doesn't have purpose? Where is this purposeless person, this entity we refer to? It's not all in, in the self because sometimes the lack of purpose is almost a reaction to losing what we had before, a kind of grief of this hope in whatever we were doing, this creation work. And I think the maturity as well comes in. You learn to listen to the silence. First of all, you bask in that silence. You let it show to you because when you're lacking purpose, what you're really saying is I need something more. I need to be working towards something to improve this state that I'm in. And so there's something here in the now that needs to be looked at, not there. So even if it's a residual resistance, the subtle self that's going on, this can really be seen in a bit more of a delicate way. Slight inquiry sometimes, where is this self? Because purpose belongs to a character. If you're identifying with a separate self, if you're identifying with someone on a timeline moving somewhere. What I just want to point to is the subtlety of the later stages of this no man's land. Sometimes, you know, emotional work it can st- still be there, but even that can be let go. I really love just sitting in silence because then what will happen is the mind goes, I need something in order to gain my purpose or get something. And then what you've got to do is get used to not knowing, get used to that sweet spot of not needing an answer, not needing to get somewhere an agenda and Something unfolds in that unknowing, I would recommend, in that no man's land. Yeah, I don't really know the nature of his practice. I mean, I wonder what he's doing with his time. If he's just sitting and watching television all day or something, maybe if you didn't allow yourself to indulge in something meaningless like that, some purpose would arise, you know, okay, now what can I do that's constructive here? Maybe I should go to school or maybe I should do this creative endeavor that I've always thought I wanted to do if I'd had time. There could be something. I mean, there are people who are naturally inclined to be monks and recluses and, like you say, sit in a cave, but most of us are not wired that way. There's a phrase that goes, Brahman is the charioteer, meaning cosmic intelligence is driving your chariot. And there's a transitionary phase that a lot of us go through where we're used to being in the driver's seat. And somehow or other, there's got to be this shift where Brahman is the driver 
And it can be a little awkward in the transition. One can lose a sense of purpose. One can go with the flow so much that one isn't taking any initiative and is becoming wishy-washy and allowing oneself to be driven around by the winds. Have you ever gone through anything like that? Yeah, it's, it's like that transition phase, whereas before it's almost less suffering in the case of I've got a purpose, you're moving towards it. And you see so many people that are striving. You see like the sportsmen usually, and then they, they reach the end of the career and they have to give that up. And there's the grief of losing this purpose, this drive. And I think you sensed into that. And I would add the most peace I've ever found is giving up purpose, giving up meaning, not even having to somehow practice to then find this more aligned higher purpose but a whole different paradigm dimension of prior to purpose because i'll go back to it again the meaning belongs to the character the character that doesn't exist the character that's moving along this enlightenment history line of going up and up close to enlightenment and now my purpose is going to be there so what i think the character is doing in this moment where he or she is in the transition phase of not having a purpose because the ones that did before dropped away i feel because he sees through the separate self or the meaningless of that meaning if that makes sense and now it's like grasping at something else to have purpose but i find the peace is when i let go of even purpose because it's a subtle resistance that happens we have a subtle momentum of needing something to in order to get towards, but you can really orient towards it until you can now sit on a park bench. And of course, career-wise, it's all play, it's all creativity, it's all these things, but I could happily stare at, and I have this whole weekend, stare out at the sea in awe of not needing anything. Purpose can be so heavy. To, to carry around purpose, even I'm going to liberate all beings. That's why I don't really like my bio there, because at the end of it, it said to alleviate suffering for others. It sounds harsh. I will put my videos out there if people need them, but I could delete my channel in a second. I could delete everything. As long as I've got an income, I'll go work in a coffee shop. The reason I think I get quite a lot of comments, which can sometimes be, I think you even sent me that email earlier today of someone really going through a video. And I think it was like a seven minute video and he gave quite a few paragraphs of what he disagreed with. And that's absolutely fine. But I think sometimes I feel I've hit the nail on the head in a way if someone's really triggered by it, because it means if someone feels really strongly by it, Sometimes it means there's something, and I could, I'll always hold my hand up if I'm wrong, and, and I'll look at it and I think, what's being said here? But sometimes, more often than not, if someone's really triggered, it means that the message is quite direct and it's pointing to something they don't want to look at. So if I was to be really direct, I'd say, go beyond purpose, go beyond meaning. If you're in a state of absolute depression, like, look, no, there is something to look, and on each level, it's not wrong. It's just, this will help the person more if I tell them, go back into the emotion, the feeling of purposes. Can you feel that out fully? And you can kind of, compassionately work way or if you go all the way you could just say there's no truth i mean there's no self or this thing but there's a skill to that but i really think the freedom in this is found just prior to meaning just prior to purpose beyond the character you mentioned park bench earlier in this response and of course that brings up eckhart tolle who after his awakening pretty much sat on a park bench for a couple of years and then I think somebody started talking to him and he started explaining things to this person and he found that this knowledge was kind of flowing through him. And one thing led to the next and now he's written all these books and traveled the world. And, and of course, his purpose is spiritual teacher and that's not going to be everybody's purpose. But I think maybe sometimes we do need a period of hiatus where we put it in neutral for a while. And um, if we've been pushing ourselves in a certain way, okay, let's relax and let everything settle down. But eventually some kind of momentum is 
likely to start up again and maybe we'll go off in a completely different direction than we were going in before and it's good that you give yourself this little period of rest but it's not going to last your whole life or it shouldn't yeah i can maybe i'm interested to hear your view on this that the momentum can come back but without purpose i think the momentum can go in a way that it unfolds and at any moment you don't know where it's going to take even the purpose if the teachings wanted to just stop and no one would listen to the channel anymore, that's fine as well. It's more that it doesn't care about the purpose. The truth now just moves its own way. And for me to put a purpose on something would be giving it an agenda or limiting it to my personal purpose. But I've seen so much freedom in allowing this to just take whatever it wants. Even if it kills me, this body mind, that's the extent you need to go. Let it completely take away with no agenda. In what you just said, you're associating the word purpose with attachment a little bit. I have this mission in life and I'm attached to it and I'll be unhappy if I can't do it. I think there can also be purpose without attachment that, you know, one can be highly motivated and, and dynamic and, and doing a certain thing. But if for some reason that has to stop, then okay. In fact, I, I wish I could find it. It would take me too long to find, but I read this great quote from the Tao Te Ching this morning about not being attached, basically. If something is taken away or you know, you're no longer doing something, okay, that's over, on to the next thing, without any remorse or, or longing or regret or anything like that. Just basically living in the now, you could say. What's wrong to mind when you're talking there was, like you say, the difference between attachment and purpose. I was think litmus tests are really good a quick checking in when anything's when you're ever making a apparent decision or these things and it's always am i making this decision on the behalf of a separate self is, is this moving from a place of fear am i moving with the whole here is this something moving through me and i even remember in the post-waking phase even to this day there's constant clarifying for example coming here this week obviously i live in london and, and i got the opportunity to visit back home my family living in Seattle. i think sometimes i go to a certain location to get away from life you know these things and, and you think am i doing this through fear or aversion but this week for example it's so nice to get out of the city and it feels like it this is just what was right you know some decisions there's no fear there, there's no attachment there things just flow without an agenda to suit a separate self the litmus test is just a constant questioning and inquiring into am i moving with truth am i moving with authenticity and like you say let's go meet in the middle i completely agree purpose could be there just maybe the purpose of the universe just non-personal purpose yeah and there have been all kinds of saints and sages throughout history who have, from the outside, appeared to have had tremendous purpose. They're driven, they're accomplishing great things and overcoming great obstacles and doing like Mahatma Gandhi, for instance. He basically overthrew the British. And yet he had this simplicity about him and innocence and surrendered to the wisdom of God, or if you want to call it that. So I guess what we're doing here perhaps is dispelling the stereotype of an enlightened person as being the guy on the mountaintop sitting in Lotus, a person can be very involved in the world and have all kinds of purposes and responsibilities and so on. And not only is that not incompatible with enlightenment, or if I can use that word, but it's actually enhanced by enlightenment or, or an awakened state. It gives one greater resources for doing whatever purpose one is called to do yeah and the key word there is surrender yeah complete surrender and bringing back to what might help people is if you ever get confused about about what to do 
orient towards either inquiry or surrender. Those two are the sharpest tools you'll have in your non-personal box of spiritual toolbox. If you either question a belief or you release resistance, either of those things will help. I mean, the belief really, they go to the roots. These beliefs that we hold, we carry around. I truly think if someone's honest enough and they, they hold space for this enough, you're in a constant state of surrender anyway. People say, you know, I can't surrender. Every time you put your foot on the pavement, you're giving faith that your leg's not going to buckle. Every time you step on a bus, you don't know if this guy's suicidal. He could crash. I hope I don't cause any fear here, but I'm showing how much you trust life already. Just trust it inwardly. Trust that nothing needs to change. Nothing needs to be done in a way that's by you. The only thing needs to be done is something to be looked at or let go of. That's all. I'm just bringing it back to this. Like you say, you use the word surrender. This this marriage between inquiry where you can do something and surrender where you can't do something. And in the middle of there is this like, magic place where it bottoms out. Yeah, it reminds me of that alcoholics thing. Grant me the wisdom to change the thing I can change, accept the things I can't change, and the wisdom to know the difference or something. I'm sort of slaughtering it, but something along those lines. Yeah, that's probably exactly the same thing in non-spiritual terms, in a way. Even that's very spiritual. It's a spiritual thing. AA is a very spiritual organization. One thing you were just saying that I found interesting is it sounds like in your experience, self-inquiry or discernment or whatever you're calling it is an ongoing process. It's it's almost like second nature now. How would you put it? It's, it's not something you got over with and awakening happened. I don't need to do that anymore, but it's it's kind of the way you roll all the time. Yeah, it, it transforms. It starts off quite clunky, especially in the Western world. We're, we are open to Raman Maharshi and all of these distorted translated ways. We try and work out what is the self-inquiry? And there's a lot of great pointers even in the West for self-inquiry. We, we ask, who am I? The first time to ever look to this person that's even trying to do all these things, get happier, become enlightened, all these things. It's quite clunky. It's quite intellectual. It's like, I'm not my name. I'm not my face. You know, what did my face look like before I was born? Where am I located in the body? All of these things, which we're a very tight ball and we're kind of picking away the threads which kind of unravel the ball slightly. Let's use the metaphor of a wall. I like poking the bricks out of the wall. My physicality, I can't even locate myself in the body. So that's kind of making the wall of the ego a bit brittle. These are the kind of top ones. And every label you've ever been given, I could change my name to Rick Archer. And suddenly, and you could change your name to Matt Garrett. And that shows the fragility of all these labels on us. I could shave my head. People are changing their gender. There's so much fragility of our labels. So we go deeper and deeper to the core. And then it's like non-physical, the thoughts, the subtle self. Whenever you have a thought of the future or the past, I remember there's a self in the middle. I physically can't have a thought without there being a character in the middle, like a Matt Garrett that, or a Rick, like that yours would be like a Rick in the middle doing a podcast tomorrow. And the self-inquiry became so intense and I would say more radical. It was constant inquiry that it went even deeper to the just subject object, just trying to find the subject. Even when I was to see the visual field, I see colors. Okay. Does that imply a subject? I know colors, but does that imply there's a color visual field hitting me, a solid entity there? Couldn't find one. Hearing, it was more transparent. There was no subject in this. I'm just getting to the point where inquiry then, this was still with an agenda that I, I was doing it with the hope of finding enlightenment. And I only find insights in this when I let go of the agenda. But what inquiry transforms into is you're inquiring out of interest. You're inquiring, of course, when suffering's there is sometimes the best time to inquire. 
because this is where, you know, the self really goes and you try and find this self that's really, really suffering and you just can't find it. And it loosens and loosens to the point where, like you say, the seeking's gone. But what the momentum of the previous conditioning was, was this momentum of behaving like a self, even though my intellect knew who I was or what I knew I was, was beyond all of that. And this is where I think suffering can become really intense because you know you're not behaving in the right way. You can't blame anyone. You know this is all your own doing to an extent. And the inquiry basically became subtler and subtler. It was, you know, the I am sense. It was the experiencer of these no self things. And it just, like you say now, it's endless. Anyone that says there's an end, I am quite suspicious about because it's as if they've achieved something. But to me, you can never clarify this enough. And with the balance of not becoming too personal will and getting that revved up, you can always clarify life becomes so mysterious. I know so much less now. I've unlearned things. I know very little. And it's scary to me some, at the start because I was like, this was everything I needed to know. And I let go of the knowledge. And now, even now I'm speaking, I don't really know what I'm talking about, but it resonates. Something resonates beyond the language. And that's where I think I get the best conversation with people is when I don't know what I'm talking about, but something moves through this knowing, this knowledge that's been let go of. I don't know who I am. I don't know all of these things. And it's very difficult sometimes to talk about. There was someone that's into like a particular thing they know a lot about, can speak about, but this is the end of knowledge. Because I think you can move into this place of living and not knowing, surrender. It's like you then know the truth because the mind doesn't need to take up all that silence with noise. So the, the inquiry, like you say, become deep, just more subtle and subtle and without agenda. And that's how it transforms. Yeah, this thing about somebody who thinks that they've reached the end of it all. St. Teresa of Avila said, it appears that the Lord himself is on the journey. You're coming out with some great quote. I need to look at all these up after. You know, you have this deep self-inquiry thing going on. Did that just sort of happen spontaneously when you were younger? It just started happening. And then that led you to reading Ramana books and other things, which gave more of a definition to it. Or did you start reading these books and get the idea to do the self-inquiry? Which is the cart and which is the horse? Yes, this is kind of going more into the personal story, which is, I think, can provide a lot of help with people for the context, because I especially remember listening to others thinking, oh, I resonate with that and I, nothing I'm doing here is wrong. So maybe I should have talked about this at the start, but it was just actually intense emotional work for a good period of time where I did think quite, I, I, I can't not take things to the edge. With emotional work, it got to a point where it's actually damaging the journey because I became so attached to the emotional work. Emotional, emotional work meaning like you were actually working with a therapist or just doing it on your own? I had one practice and that was to sit in a silent room or whatever, anywhere you were, just quietly, even in the, starting off in, in my house because I needed that retreat and just to allow whatever was in the body to be there without trying to change it, manipulate it, even practice out of it, basically die into it. And this is when I got, I hate creating all this candy for the mind, but I got Kundalini energy, which just bolted up through my spine and just seemed like this energy and, and had all these crazy revelations, which now looking back was good that I never got sidetracked into them because this is where people can set up camp. So with all of this emotional work, what I realized now was it was almost a form of inquiry because these layers of emotion were seen to be layers of identity, layers of contraction. They weren't just emotional work and then inquiry. I was doing the tantric approach first for day and night. I remember one time I racked up like 10 hours of just sitting with it. And at that point I knew. So this sitting and letting whatever happens, you call that tantric work. 
I'd call it, yeah, I think it's tantric. I, this is the thing I don't read about. It was just one practice. I think David Hawkins had a single technique of just get as close as you can to wherever it feels this resistance is and just to die into it, let it stay. And what I found was all these little residual, they were like traumas that I pushed down, even lifetimes ago, maybe, but especially in childhood, like they were coming up and it was a, an intense period of time and then deep, deep lows and then massive highs and all of this coming up. And one day I was riding my bike and I knew deep down, I think what the, the grief that was coming was that this technique wasn't going to be the truth. I had to let go of the technique and the grief in that because it is something like dying away. I just started saying I in my head. I was cycling. I had a flat tire, so I was really going against it. So there was that. I was fed up. I think that really added to the surrender. But I was going I, I, I. There's something about I, because I remember Ramana Maharshi video, and I clicked off it because it probably made me try and look at something I needed to look at. And I was going deeper and deeper into the sense of I. And I sat down under a cathedral, and I opened up this video of Ramana Maharshi, and I knew every word he was saying. I know it wasn't him saying it. It was like a translation of an English guy just reading out what he'd said was look for the self or investigate the self. And that is all. And I rode home that day. And I think as the mind does, it wants to watch videos. And I was, I remember coming across Rupert Spira that day. I remember coming across all these great teachers that were looking for the eye. And I, and I thought I've never looked around before and looked for the one that's even doing the emotional work. And that sparked a good amount of time into just inquiry into the self. And I became so interested in the self. I was suffering a lot, but I think I had this slight, aha, I can go through this. I don't have to go around it with emotional work or all this stuff. And I took that to the edge, like you said, and that's when we go back to how we just talk about with that even weaning off into integration. That's very interesting. You referred to past lives a number of times today. I ascribe to that notion as well. I think we reincarnate and you definitely seem to me like one of those people who've been on a spiritual path for many lives. And when you came into this one, it just kicked in again. Speaking of the Gita again, Arjuna asks Krishna, well, you know, what happens if a person is on the path and he doesn't make it and he dies? Does he not perish like a broken cloud? And and Krishna basically just said, well, no, he hangs out in heaven for a while. Then he comes back and picks it up where he left off. That's, I've spoken to love. There's nothing really special. Obviously, we're all the same source. If you sense something, but it, it doesn't correlate with your memory of this body mind, I've usually associated that with something previous to the body mind something like a resonation that something resonates but even that energetic movement i think i've sometimes people everyone said it, it's not just me people i've talked about sometimes you feel something and the feeling is as if it's like impersonal it doesn't even belong to you it's like you're feeling that part of humanity for example in the masculine the masculine we have definitely in males even the western world we've all got our own little stories of why we suffer of course personal thing but with males for example i think there's a lot of suffering in generalization like needing to be an alpha male at times. We're taught with all these things, that kind of aspect. And with women, not to generalize, also have some which they can all relate to. And we're all feeling out something that's quite impersonal at times, whether it's the lifetime, whether it's just this part of the shadow work, I'm not sure. But I think there's something to really say about you start to realize this suffering doesn't even belong to me. It's almost as if you're having to go through it for something that's bigger. It's not even yours. And never mind past lives where the body minds don't match up. So the memories don't make sense. But you just energetically feel like, of course, the apple dropped from the tree for me young. And now it's just a, a radical honesty with oneself to really feel this through until it permeates all aspects of experience. And you live life just oriented towards truth. Interesting. 
I was a student of Maharshi Mahesh Yogi for many years, and he used to speak of all the accumulated stuff in our nervous system and all as stress. That was the English word he used. I think the Sanskrit equivalent would be samskaras. But someone asked him, well, what would happen if we managed to release or resolve all of our stress and didn't have any anymore? And he said, then you start working on cosmic stress, meaning I think the stresses of the world, the stresses of society, you become a washing machine for that. And the number of people I've interviewed have said that. They feel like they can feel like they're processing things that people are going through all over the world. They're acting as a purificatory mechanism or something for stuff that's in the collective consciousness. Yeah, try sitting with anyone post-awakening and trying not to feel what they're feeling. You just feel it. And there's no I'm feeling or you're feeling. There's just karmic energy that needs to be released. There's something in that that's beautiful because then you realize, I remember an insight quite late on was, this isn't even my story. This isn't even my suffering, my meaning. This is like the, the universe waking up to itself. Just in my little corner of the universe, if we go back to space and time, but it's not even mine. It's like the universe really resonating here about, because it's so juicy, isn't it? All our little stories of this is why I'm suffering and we all have our own. Unless you've seen a therapist or someone else, not you, but if, if anyone's not seen a therapist, then maybe they've never even talked about them before. But we all have them, our little juicy stories that we like to cling to and say why we suffer. But to orient towards truth is to really give these up as well. That's sometimes so hard because it's so nice, comfortable to, and warm to feel why I'm suffering. Because of this, I can't wake up or because of that. And that's what surrendered to an extent as well. And like you say, you, you bottom out to your personal suffering and now sometimes you, this general heartbreak for humanity, you feel this grief, like we're all losing ourselves and in losing ourselves, we're gaining, we're going back to source, but to reveal source is who we truly are requires a tremendous amount of surrender. And now this doesn't even feel like this is my suffering. This is just, I'm feeling this on behalf of humanity here and it's crushing. That's beautiful. We expand our territory of influence, we could say. I think it's a natural human tendency to do that. And there certainly is a lot of suffering in the world that needs healing. I've always had this orientation about spirituality that, in a way, it's the hope of the world. Because without it, we're never going to sort everything out just with surface-level solutions. There needs to be a change in consciousness, really, for the world to be changed. So I find great hope in the, the fact that people like yourself and many other people around the world are having these awakenings. And... You know, you don't see it on the evening news. And if you didn't realize that this whole dimension exists, it would be easy to become pessimistic. I think that the fact that this whole network of people around the world is waking up could very well be the thing that saves humanity. Yeah. As you're talking about, it made me think of the word responsibility. You can look at the word responsibility in your own personal journey of this thing and also responsibility for why are we doing this and of course if we are to be really precise it usually is fueled by suffering of course there's good people out there that will do it in order to make better for someone else but i think the best way you can help others is to really work on your own realization for example for me to go into my realization angelo to go in his realization he didn't try and help me he went into his own realization flowered his realization and through his realization spark something in me we don't want to call cause and effect but it's when people wake up themselves that has this ripple effect yeah. it's less about this i'm going to go and help these people because once you do that personal agenda personal will all comes back and it just takes up the room of what reality was trying to do there 
Yeah, I mean, look at some of these people that think, okay, we're going to send missionaries to Africa and save these poor heathens and turn them on to Jesus or whatever. And yet those people themselves haven't had any real genuine spiritual awakening. So it's premature. Yeah, it's premature. There's a flip side to everything. And there are people who think, to hell with you, I'm working on my own realization. So you can just uh, go to hell and I'm not interested in you. Get out of my way. It can become a selfish thing. And I've, I've seen that. But again, there's always a balance. It's a litmus test again. Am I acting from fear? Or am I acting through love? There's something you said there that I really want to go into. Talk about the missionaries. It's the thing with suffering because I think we project this savior complex. But sometimes it's their suffering which is going to wake them up. For us to try and get away from our own thing to go and help these people, not to the extent of the African. Let's say it's someone that's just spiritually suffering they're your friend or something. And sometimes we can take the savior complex that I need to help them. But in trying to just do it by forcing something on them, like non-duality or this or that, I think one, it's an aversion from sitting in your own and and working in your own self. And if you really were to realize this deeply, it would flower that what they're going through is exactly needed for them. I've only ever had insights through deep suffering. And there's an extent to, yes, you can help people on a practical level. But sometimes I've found to tell someone to just sit with it. I'm not going to help, but sit with the silence and see what unfolds if you don't get help. On one hand, we need people to take responsibility for their own awakening. I think that's what I've seen on the brutal side of things. And this isn't to do with the African on the relative level of helping. This is to do with how much suffering you try and take away from someone. Yeah, there's that. I think that groups like Doctors Without Borders or people that go and help people build solar-powered wells in villages where the women have to walk 20 miles a day with a bucket on their head and now they can get local water. and All that kind of stuff is great and there should be more of it. But I think a lot of the times the motivation for going in to quote-unquote save the heathens is very egocentric. I mean, there's been so much violence and brutality in the name of that throughout history with all the colonization that happened around the world. And even now, I think a lot of times the tendency to want to get everyone to believe what you believe is a symptom of your own doubt and insecurity. And it somehow helps to reinforce one's self-confidence if you can get everybody else to buy into your particular trip. You know, there's a case of actually really needing to look within and, and not going and out and trying to impose your beliefs on others. Yeah, there's two words you said there. You said reinforce self-confidence, but I would go, like you said, reinforce self. If you're going out with your projections, your need to do something, you're just solidifying the self that's being this hero saving someone. You're running from the truth that you're nothing. Because to be able to help someone, you're then creating this self-image of a savior or someone that can do something, a substance to you that you're going out and doing this thing. And I would completely agree on the relative level of Africa or people that are in poverty, there's that. But I'm talking purely on the spiritual level or purely on the level of, of mind, psychological suffering. If I was to think about it, if I could actually make myself believe illusion uh, even more and feel I need to go and help the south of England wake up or London and start a meditation center. These are all great things to do when done with the right purpose, motivation. But I can do that as an aversion to having to sit in silence and sit with what I'm running from. Because as soon as I have these all these big plans to help London, I'm now back into the mind, back into getting away from that. Just sitting in realization, I've reached people through my YouTube channel where 
I upload a video and it goes whatever and very little effort on my part. But the most effort I put in is just tackling that which needs to be seen in the deepest, darkest places of my mind. And it's the worst thing I ever wanted to do to start with. Then you start to realize looking and, and illuminating these dark places of your mind and seeing the self that appears in all these stories, it starts off being the most painful thing, but then you realize it's the most relief because this is where all the suffering was tightly in a ball. Yeah. And that's when it expands or dissolves. Yeah. Recently, the Pope went to Canada to apologize to the indigenous people because in the last 150 years or so, or when, whatever the time span was, the children were taken away from the families and put in these Catholic boarding schools to have their native culture stripped away from them, shave their heads, force them to speak English, all kinds of stuff like that. And then they ended up getting sexually abused and physically abused, and a lot of them died. I mean, so it's a complete disaster where people who thought they were righteous were just doing tremendous harm. And I guess this is a little bit apart from our general conversation, but for some reason it's coming up. I think that one always has to make it one's first priority to know the self, to purify oneself before trying to help other people. If you go, if you want to be a lifeguard, learn how to swim before you start trying to save people yeah. from drowning. I think that's the best metaphor for it. Um, and also with the thing with the Pope, it's like this increase in consciousness has allowed, it's almost like there's more awareness now to see what's been happening. And it takes a tremendous amount of self-honesty to go and apologize and this is all it comes down to is honesty not just with others like there's no more blame anymore for anyone else this is what's horrible really for, because it's so nice to be able to blame certain people and even guilt uh, there's a slight residual resistances and these things and you do have to be so honest to take full responsibility for your own awakening but yes on the relative level people can harm the body these things with words and there's a lot of trauma out there which is unfortunate for certain people but to an extent the real psychological roots of suffering is all our own doing, but it's all our own play. We've just lost track of who we really are in this big play. All I'm interested in is that root of suffering because people can take it out. And then, you know, we talked about with all these different spiritual stuff, whereas all these branches of spirituality, with a, you can trim all day, but it will just grow back if the root's still there. And if you don't take the root out, even when the root seems to be taken out, there's still this momentum of the root growing back and you just need to die into that make it your life's orientation. Very good. That's a good concluding point. And I know we better wrap it up because you have to leave in about five minutes for some place. So I looked at your website. It's a simple website, not a lot on it, but you do have quite a bit on your YouTube channel and I'll link to both of those from your BatGap page. But on your website, you also have a little thing where a person can have a personal conversation with you or something. So I don't know how much time you have for that kind of thing, but um, do you do many of those? Do you you want yeah. people, if people want to get in touch, they can do that? Yeah, so obviously my full-time job in film. So when anyone is ever interested, I do get quite a lot of those submissions. So I just set aside Fridays usually for them or the odd Thursday if people want to talk with me. Always open the chat and email as well in case you just want to speak. If you want a session, yeah, Fridays, but my emails through my website is always there if you need to chat. Okay. Um, do you take a donation or a fee for that or what? Yeah, so first session is completely free because I give up a day of working. Uh, yeah, you only have so much time, right? So there's a fee, but obviously full refundable. But I've always found these conversations to be so, on my end as well, I learned so much. I've met so many people through it that I resonate with and we kept keep in touch and I absolutely love it. So yeah, Fridays I set aside for that. Great. All right. Well, thanks so much, Matt. It's really been great 
talking with you and getting to know you. And I hope we stay in touch, you know, see each other in the future, maybe even in person someplace. If I ever get over to the UK, I'll definitely get in touch. That's one thing I was going to say. I think at some point it will come to America again, just because I mentioned doing the moment on consciousness. America is a hotbed for everyone I want to interview and stuff. So, yeah, um, well, I can help be, you get in touch with people. That would be really helpful. Thank you, Rick. Yeah, good. Okay, well, thanks a lot. And uh, thanks to those who've been listening or watching. And as I mentioned, next week, I'll be interviewing Jessica Nathanson. She lives in Israel, although she's from my home state of Connecticut. We used to actually ski at the same ski area, although we never ran into each other, either literally or figuratively. I think it's going to be a really interesting interview and hope you stay tuned for that. If you'd like to be notified of future interviews, there on the upcoming interviews page, there's a little thing in the right-hand column where you can click and put it into your calendar to be notified of the live ones. And then the permanent ones, we send an email out when I post each one. So if you'd like to get that and be notified, sign up for the email list. There's a place on BatGap to do that. Subscribe to the YouTube channel if you like. And anyway, if you go to BatGap and explore the menus, you'll find a bunch of different things that you might find interesting. Check out the website. Look at the different menus. All right. Thanks. I'll see you for the next one. Thanks, Matt. Cheers. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye.